where are the principles of transparency? Where are the standards around what content gets taken down and what content is shown, right? That's a tremendous amount of power on the part of a platform to shape public discourse. It's extremely important work. This episode is part of the special Sunday edition on propaganda, which seems fitting for the 2020 election season in the U.S. I know we all want this to be over, but before we, well, fingers crossed, can get that relief, I wanted to reflect on this electoral cycle and the use of propaganda, particularly the fear of deep fakes that seemed to consume everyone earlier this year, as well as memes and the platforms that are helping or hurting the fight against propaganda. My guest is An Shao Mina, who is an artist, researcher, and public intellectual. But you probably already know that if you're a longtime listener. Her book, Memes to Movements, How the World's Most Viral Media is Changing Social Protest and Power, was one of the first to offer insight into what's going on with memes and their relationship to power and politics. Long dismissed as fun or frivolous, memes help sway public opinion and therefore elections nowadays. We've long taken them seriously at Hyperallergic, but I'm glad others are too. I'm Hanag Bartanya, the host of the Hyperallergic podcast. Let's get started and welcome onto the program. Thanks for having me back again. So the one thing I want to ask you first, because we've been having conversations all year about what's going on. And the one question I want to start with is, what happened to all the deep fakes? There were a lot of alarm bells being rung for, for yeah. months about deep fakes influencing this election, doing so much. What happened? Yeah, I don't know. I was been wondering the same thing. Where are all the deep fakes? And, uh, and I think it, it actually, it becomes a, a way to kind of look at what actually is influencing the, the election. And uh, it turns out that, you know, like the president simply speaking over his debate partner can actually create a lot more uh, confusion and chaos than, than the kind of, kind of computational power required to, to generate a deep fake. Um, in so many ways where we're dealing with very traditional media strategies, it doesn't mean that deep fakes won't happen, that we won't get a very influential one that might land before some point during or after the U.S. election. But uh, I think what we're seeing is that more traditional media strategies are, are a lot more influential. That's a good question. I, I was thinking about the fact that, was it a couple of weeks ago, there was a video released by the Trump campaign, or at least Trump adjacent, because of course, a lot of this stuff, you don't quite know exactly where it's coming from, even if it circulates in the same circles. You know, But the video of uh, Biden sort of saying something, and they had edited it in a way that it appeared he was saying something else. That yeah. felt like it was the beginning of that. But what's interesting to me was how it was sort of taken down by Facebook and others quickly. So I wonder whether social platforms also responding quicker has taken out of some of the teeth. Yeah, yeah, there's a little bit of that. I mean, so, so technically that video is not um, a deep fake. In the in the sense that that is meant by artificial intelligence researchers, right? It wasn't. It was it was using selective editing, and so folks like Joan Donovan and Britt Paris at Data and Society coined the word "cheap fakes" uh, to talk about what That's most of us. Great is, word. I love that word. Yeah, and it's perfect for Trump. Let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, and it you know it's what any of us who study discount fakes. Yeah. Discount, discount fakes, fakes exactly. Yeah, discount. Yeah, bargain bargain fakes, right? Yeah, it's it's what 
um, those of us who study media and art have always known is that editing and perspective and uh, you know point of view are all uh, all really important, and, and the context is actually even more important. That um, and and so so I think part of it is well, one, it's not a deep fake, but two, I, I, there is something some credit to be to be shared with folks who are raising alarm bells and saying, look, like you platforms need to have their video policies in place and to be ready for um, for potentially misleading content, and so. Um, uh, so, uh, so that that's certainly not disconnected from the fact that so many alarm bells were being raised about deepfakes. But it turns out that uh, cheap fakes are um, can, are often just as dangerous. So, I mean, we were talking about the U.S. election, but have deepfakes or anything else been used in foreign elections or in yeah. foreign campaigns? Because sometimes it seems these things are tested out overseas before they're sort of brought here. In terms of because the U.S. media maybe is a little scrutinizes a little more. I don't know why. Could be a lot of reasons. Have you seen any evidence of that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I was just reading a a report from Witness Media Lab that was um, where they did a workshop when they did a convening in South and Southeast Asia about key threats that we should expect around a deep fakes and cheap fakes and what they call shallow fakes and basically another word for cheap fake is. um, And so part of the workshop was, you know, they they were building off similar ones that they'd held in Brazil and South Africa. And and they really pointed this out that, look, like if we're going to have this conversation and we should, it's absolutely, it's it's something we should be concerned about. Um, We have to be centering folks who are not in Silicon Valley, because almost certainly, like you said, it's it's going to affect folks, um, you know, who are outside of the U.S. first, because like you said, it's easy, things are often tested in, in different places. And so uh, one of the recommendations is that we really have to look at the existing visual misinformation and disinformation in the region. And so it seems like, again, like, um, I personally haven't seen uh, too much evidence of a lot of, um, you know, really like um, impactful deepfake work versus just a more traditional like selective editing. The uh, the biggest concern that I think that I think a lot of people have right now, and this is both from the witness report, but also from some new reporting by Jane Litovenko over at um, at BuzzFeed, is that actually some of the most pressing uh, threat right now is actually gender based violence using deepfakes, you know, like, like the generation of non-consensual nudes or non-consensual pornography is, uh, uh, may actually be uh, more impactful at the moment than, uh, than kind of political confusion. So you're talking about like people releasing videos of people supposedly engaging in sexual acts. That's right. Yeah. And, and that's where deepfake technology can and already has been used um, in, in different ways. It's always porn. A porn seems to lead porn, the way yeah. online. It's if absolutely I, right. Why do you think that is? What is it about like the fact that people creating, I mean, I'm not going to call it revenge porn, but it probably fits within that bigger sort of realm of like, you know, uh, using porn or porn images to sort of like manipulate and, and have your way essentially. So what is it about that? Like, why would that be the more interesting? Like, why would that be the place people would go to? Is it because people just don't fact check porn? That's an interesting question. I think, well, I think one is in kind of uh, usability studies, um, like people who do, who like look at technology, there's this like new word called like, abusability testing, right? Instead of just usability testing is if a technology exists, it's going to be abused. Um, and it's, uh, in fact, one of the oldest rules of the internet is there is porn of it. This porn is this tremendous driver of technological uptake and usage, um, you know, especially with a, with regards to the internet. And that's that could be fine, you know, if it's consensual porn and um, between you know consenting adults. But if it's non-consensual, um, I think you know that that's highly problematic. But uh, the thing is, that is not new. 
we should not be surprised by this. And in fact, uh, I think that these are, these are the alarm bells that we should be paying attention to much more so than the use of deep fakes in, um, in political context because of the, the potential for psychological and reputational harm here. That's a really great point, Han. So one of the things I have noticed this year, and I'd love your take on this, is while a lot of this sort of propaganda was very flat, by which I mean there tended to be images, I do wonder about how things like TikTok have changed the conversation. You know, TikTok, and I don't know whether it's just, you know, at least, but from what I've seen, it's harder to fake it. Do you know what I mean? Because <laughs> it's quirky. It's weird. Yeah. It's, inter, it's interactive much more. And, you know, in the sort of the way the comments are, I mean, just to give you an example, this past weekend, there was that silly Trump dance that he did at a rally yes. that, you know, without a mask. And it was, it was absolutely ridiculous. And the other day already, kids on TikTok, I don't want to call them kids because they're probably young adults, but some of them might be kids <laughs> on TikTok have already turned it into a dance. But at the same time, I'm not sure what the politics of this are. You're watching these videos and you're like, I don't know, are they sort of just making fun of him? Are they supporting him? And that becomes more confusing too. Now, what has the shift of the landscape? How has that influenced this? Yeah, it's it's super interesting. Well, I think I think there are kind of two things. You know, we we had such a great conversation about TikTok last time, um, and I think there there are two things probably that I think of with regards to TikTok. One, uh, just to just to build from the, the deep fake um, kind of thread here, is what's so interesting is that you can create deep fakes now within TikTok and Instagram with certain filters or what what look like deep fakes, right? They can auto generate video that looks like someone else, and and so in some ways, uh, that's I do actually genuinely think that's teaching a form of media literacy right there, just like learning to write poems, learning to write stories helped. Point? It helps you it helps you understand how headlines are written, right? Like writing writing for an outlet like Hyperallergic, writing you know doing actual reporting helps you understand how reporting works and how how um, points of view kind of can slip into text. And I think we can do the same thing with video. So that's one. But two, I think I think one one interesting to your point, it's actually it's hard to fake a TikTok video, right? You can't you can't just be like a bot or or even a um, you know a a kind of cyborg account. You, you actually have to be a human being doing doing little videos, and and we have actually seen some of the evidence of in in terms of like the kind of the newest disinformation research from uh, from like influence campaigns is that they they're literally like paying or, or influencing influencers to then spread like, disinformation. And so again, you know, using the Russia example, just because there's research on it, but not because it's the only example, is that you know, social media influencers can be hired to, to spread messages. And so, so it, it increases the cost of how um, an influence campaign can work, but it doesn't eliminate it entirely. So what is it about um, I think this election that you're seeing is unique because in some ways I'm actually surprised there haven't been more innovations in this kind of propaganda, mm -hmm. to be quite yeah. honest. You know, considering how uh, the Trump campaign in 2016 was frankly pretty innovative, you know, by the way yeah. that they were sort of playing the media and how they really sort of ignored mainstream media in many ways, unless they sort of came to bite because of his celebrity and stuff. And they sort of focused on the online world in a way that I think really sort of ate the lunch of Democrats uh, at that yeah. time. But right now, I haven't seen a lot of change from that. So what's going on? Yeah, it's interesting. I was, I was wondering the same thing. I was like, hmm, like it's, uh, you know, I think, I think in some regards, the debate between Trump and Biden was, it was like a one example. I was like, okay, there's something here where like Biden was bringing sound bites to a meme fight, right? Like, like Trump was like very much playing the meme game. 
but beyond that, I haven't, yeah, you're right. I haven't seen as, you know, a ton. And I think part of the, I think there are a few things here. One is we're catching up. Uh, you know, there's a lot of discussion about the role of the online environment and how it influenced uh, the election of Trump. And, and so changes have been done. People have been learning. Um, on the other hand, and, you know, journalists haven't learned enough. Um, they're still, you know, still, still haven't quite caught up. But, but at the very least, uh, people are at least aware of the, the kind of range of techniques. And, and so, you know, just last night, AOC, you know, she, uh, she got onto Twitch and was playing video games and doing uh, get out the vote campaigns with, uh, with Ilhan Omar. And so in, in many ways, uh, the Democrats have, are catching up, right? The, it is not a coincidence that, um, that we had this like kind of new wave of energy um, from Congress people who, who are just the social media savvy. And so it's, it's kind of what, you know, it's, it's a moment of contention now, um, maybe more than, than kind of out and out kind of disproportionate power. I mean, that makes absolute sense. I guess the part where maybe innovation has happened, and I hate to use the word in relation to this, but mm. maybe in terms of, of sort of like how maybe the innovation was unfortunately QAnon, mm. which yep. in the last, as many people know, really only emerged in 2017 based on a, a post on, on 4chan. Right. Do you know? And, you know, I'll just give you a sense, but uh, some new polling from Hope Not Hate, which is a UK-based anti-extremist nonprofit, they found more than a third of Americans say that, saying that they believe it's at least possibly true that elites are secretly engaging in large-scale child trafficking and abuse. One third. Right. On, right. what do you think about that? Yeah, you're right. That's the innovation. And it's uh, text message drops and memes. It doesn't require high technology. Um, it's uh, it's such a um, uh, such a complex topic, and uh, um, and I think part of this is that uh, is that you know, again we haven't been taking care of our online spaces. And two, the reason people believe in conspiracy theories, and I've been thinking a lot about this, is because conspiracies happen. Uh, elites. Um, engage in all kinds of things that that actually you know are harmful for society. Jeffrey Epstein exists, and uh, and so um, we can't be dismissive of the um, of the realities of you know the kind of um, inequalities in power in society. And yet, on the other hand, um, it's in that context that then distrust in society can then be abused and manipulated to create you know really um, uh, really difficult like kind of uh, viewpoints that can that can be quite harmful for society. I mean, that's such a good point. I think, speaking of Twitch, by the way, last night I did take a look at AOC at Twitch. Did you? Yes, absolutely. Because it was, you know, I like Twitch. I actually enjoy watching people play video games sometimes. Because yeah, I find fun. it's, well, it's also kind of a form of shopping in a way. Like, you're like, okay, should I play that game? You know, like, oh, yeah, I go yeah, for, yeah, that's right. Know, so I find yeah. that it's actually mo most useful for me that way. Right. But what I was amazed at, she had over 500,000 people watching. Yep. And then um, there was a report that came out this, this week from Columbia Journalism Review about the fact that places like Tesla, the car manufacturer, has stopped pretty much answering reporters yeah. and has pretty much has an unofficial policy of not really responding to reporters, which I think is part of a growing movement of the super wealthy ignoring the media and That's going right. straight to platforms like Twitch, like yeah. Twitter, like Facebook, like all these things. Now, how is that going to influence propaganda? And yeah, the way we, yeah. because, you know, if there, if there aren't, if there aren't the traditional channels to even fact check it, do you know, to right. like, so that if, if AOCs, because I was thinking about that and I thought, you know what, I bet you if that say the Washington Post or the New York Times or someone wrote an article about AOC, 
you know, I don't know if a half a million people would, would read it. Do you know? And, right. and even if they did read it, they wouldn't really get a sense of AOC, right? In the way that if you're spending half an hour on Twitch watching her play, you may feel a sense of closeness that would probably be more beneficial long-term to a politician right. than an article in the New York Times. That scares me. Thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it is, um, this is the moment, uh, you know, this is the these past few years, we are seeing the kind of decentralization of media, which we used to celebrate, keep in mind, that used to be the exciting well, thing. I still, right? part, I still partly celebrate, but it's just now it's, yeah. it feels like it's part of the problem is like, there isn't any transparency about anything. Yes. Because we all yeah. imagine transparency being. We, yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what would happen is we scaled up communication and distribution of media without scaling up all the things that we used to value about media, like editorial review, um, transparency, trust, things like that. And so, so this allows like groups, you know, um, whether for good or for ill, to directly reach out to audiences and build up their own audiences, right? And and without all those those kind of other potential benefits that we that we ascribe to journalism. Uh, so yeah, I was just reading that same article and um, uh, you know in CJR about about how you know and this frames like the Washington Post is just just not as relevant in the same way, right? And in some ways, right? Um, there there's kind of the kind of leftist critique is look like a lot of these uh, outlets were um, ignoring marginalized voices. Um, they were not centering, uh, the, you know, the, the real work of, of people who, who are working for rights and, um, and that we needed to work around that. And then what we have now is that at scale. How will this affect things? It's hard to say. But I think, I think one thing to keep in mind is that this was the model of news before, um, you know, before the, the advent of broadcast, right? Before newspapers, before radio, news was distributed in a decentralized way, whether through the town crier or through pamphlets. Um, and so in many ways, What's new here is the scale of it, which I, which I think is is different, um, and the fact that I can get my news from different parts of the world or from many more communities than I could have in the past. Um, but the phenomenon of it of decentralization is is in fact not is not super new. So with regards to propaganda, I think one of the things I, I think about is is in this um, in this environment, what are the specific vulnerabilities? And one of them is um, one of them is confusion. Right. The traditional mode of propaganda has been to to kind of, and this was kind of the, the kind of Václav Havel view of things, right? it was like you create a world of consensus, of manufactured consensus, um, that that through your media, through broadcast media, that uh, you know, creates a sense of like how the world is. But today that's not possible. So instead, um, it seems like actually the bigger threat is what's what caller Penny Andrews is called dissensus, which means that, you know, no one can agree on things. And uh, and so you kind of give up on the news. Like, why bother? Why, why bother keeping up? It's too much. Can't handle it. And that it inherently um, supports um, supports those in power because then we're not engaging in, in kind of critical discourse about what's happening. You know, there's a book I, I'd love to recommend to people, Writing on the Wall, Social Media, yes. 2,000 Years by Tom Standage. Absolutely. You know, and one of the things that he writes about, and I feel like he really got right in this book, which is the fact that, you know, the model that we talk about media, you know, this sort of centralized media, he talks about it as, it's, as if it's a blip in the history of humanity. The yep. fact that in the 20th century, in the late 19th century, this sort of consolidation of these big media companies pushing out information was just not the case, you know, right. ever. And, right. you know, and it may never be the case again, do you yep. know? 
And thinking about that is actually really also impactful thinking about like the professional writer. I mean, professional writers were also a blip in some ways, right? In the history of humanity, there weren't a lot of times where writers could make a living off their writing. Do you know, in, in, in this sort of like without a patron, without somebody else to sort of, and often it was because when people retired or they had other jobs that they were also writing, which is actually true in so many communities, particularly minority communities um, where, you know, literature, you know, is supported by essentially, you know, amateurs and private patrons, right? Because there is no market in the traditional way. So that also makes me think about this, like maybe we are shifting away. So that these platforms are just starting to uh, change all that. And I do want to read a paragraph from that article we're talking about for people who may want to know more. It's called Washington Post Public Editor. The powerful have realized they don't need the post. And it's by Hamilton Nolan, which as many people may remember from Gawker, um, which was another speak truth to power that sort of suffered in in this sort of weird era of power. So I just want to read this paragraph so people kind of get a sense of what's going on. We are living through a historic technology-fueled shift in the balance of power between the media and its subjects. The subjects are winning. The internet in general, and social media platforms in particular, have destroyed one of the media's main important sources of power, being the only place that could offer access to an audience. When Musk can say whatever he wants to 40 million Twitter followers at any time with no filter, it is little surprise that he does not feel compelled to listen to unpleasant questions from some reporter who wants to know why he busts unions and widely accuses people of pedophilia. We're in trouble, aren't we? I mean, the the thing that's not being discussed here is how the power is then centralized onto platforms as well. Right. Um, yeah. So how, so, so, is, so what does that look like for people? You know, it's like we're talking about this, but I want people who are listening to this to get a real sense of what that means every day. You know, sure. what does that yeah. mean here? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I will say that, you know, I've been very active in, in uh, sort of, uh, you know, getting people to be aware of what's going on in Artsakh, the Republic of Nagorno-Karabakh and the Caucasus mm-hmm. um, between Azerbaijan and Armenia. And there's the war that's being waged right now. And it's amazing that even with all the mainstream sort of blackout for a while there of all the coverage, people were still able to circulate information, which you know shows why some of these centralized platforms have been so dangerous for a lot of people for a long time. Yeah. Um, because, you know, si- silencing of these conversations is life and death. They re- it really is. But, you know, now you see this disinformation campaign happening. And actually, Facebook and other platforms closed down thousands of accounts connected to the Azerbaijani dictator just mm-hmm. in the last month, you know, in the midst of this. But it makes me think about how many other misinformation campaigns are still going. And there is yeah. nobody coming knocking and calling them out. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's I, I'm sorry to be so depressing on, but it, yeah. it feels a little yeah, depressing. It's a depressing right time. Now. It's yeah. a depressing time. Right. So you're, yeah. you're feeling the same way I yeah. am. Absolutely. And, um, and I think um, when you think about this um, is like, um, where are the principles of transparency? Where are the standards around what content gets taken down and what content is shown, right? That's a tremendous amount of power on the part of a platform to shape public discourse. It's extremely important work. But um, what tends to be favored 
um, is folks who have the savvy to navigate platform policies, um, who have the ability to to advocate loudly. Um, and so, exactly to your concern, is what um, what does this look like for everybody else who's who um, whose voices may not have the uh, the kind of reach or the ability to to navigate platform policies? And then at the same time. What are the exact rationales and and the fact that there are so many different platforms in which messages can be spread? What are the standards across platforms that we should be thinking about, right? Um, and uh, any any one platform can can take an action, but if it if it's not matched by by similar policies um, elsewhere, then um, it it can just be inconsistently applied. And we're we're seeing that with a um, number of different things. And so yeah, these are these are tough times. And these that I think I think what what we learned. Certainly last year, but I think for those of us looking at these problems um, for the for years, is that these are life or death matters. These are not. Um, this is not just like oh, it's just something silly happening on the internet. Um, this literally like affects worldviews, which in turn um, can uh, yeah can can uh, lead to tremendous violence and harm. So, do you see any hope? Do you see any of this coordination happening anywhere? I mean, you've been monitoring this closely, and I yeah. and you know people might ask, what does this have to do with art world? But you know, I think it has a lot to do with the art world because I think you know this sort of you know frankly, we're a field that tries to you know, get at the truth, whatever that is, yeah. you know, but at the same time, a lot of the, I've noticed a lot of the techniques being used were probably techniques that were experimented with by artists yeah. and others. At Absolutely. First. So Absolutely. what is the responsibility of an art, yeah. artist in this case? On And as yeah. an artist, I'm asking you this as well as a researcher. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it was artists who first brought attention, right? I think it was hyperallergic itself that first brought attention to the kind of inconsistent uh, taking down of content on social media platforms. Right around um, around uh, especially new um, images depicting nudity, and so artists artists are the ones often at the forefront of these challenges. And and now we're kind of talking about it at the geopolitical scale. But uh, artists are often the ones who are pushing the boundaries, asking questions. And so it feels extremely vital that artists are both bringing their perspectives to the table and that they are brought to the table when when um, when discussing the the kind of role of media. I think for anyone who studied media, none of this is all that uh, surprising. It's uh, you know it's challenging and depressing, but the the actual specific techniques are, are age old techniques just applied to the internet. And so, you know, we need to understand how algorithms work, how platform policies work, and and all these things. And so, the opportunities for hope here, I think, is one is that is that this is now in the public discourse in a way that just wasn't there before. And so, um, what can we do to shape that discourse um, to influence it? And, uh, and because it's happening at the global level where um, folks at the UN are thinking about standards, there's a unique opportunity to be, to be really um, helping shape this in, in, in some form or fashion. That doesn't mean that capital and power won't win out, but it does mean that there's at least this conversation. And so, so that's at least new and is, is I think, a, an opportunity. So now how about in terms of some of these memes that are going around now? Have you seen anything that has really piqued your interest that makes you think that like, you know, there's been something, I mean, I, I mean I've been loving the really, I have to say, I just like the ones that are funny, honestly. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. my favorite is the one, um, the sign that says, even on Gilligan's Island, they listen to the professor, not the millionaire, <laughs> you yeah. know, which is yeah, which totally. one of my personal favorites. Do you have any? Gosh, I mean... I think I've just been enjoying the funny ones. I've been enjoying these uh, these ones about about the the, you know, the Rona coming after you. Um, you know the, the kind of jokes about about washing you know washing your hands, dancing, and uh, the kind of paranoia of social distancing, right. and that that's kind of engendered here. I think I think in some ways it's almost like the meme discourse went from like very super serious in 2016 
and, and then I think now we're, I hope um, there's, there's also this, like, this kind of room for, for kind of remembering the levity of this. I think um, in depressing times, we need, we need these moments of humor. So that's what I see. I, I'm, certainly I've seen, you know, uh, you know, ones that are spreading disinformation, ones that are uh, spreading political, you know, kind of political messages for, for good or for ill. But I, 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 frankly, I just, I'm gravitating now towards just these, these kind of funny, silly ones because, you know, it's like, we need some joy in our lives right now. Uh, I'm with you there. So now I want to drill down on, on one thing specifically. And I hate to talk about QAnon because I think they're so, it's such a ridiculous theory or not even a theory. It's just crackpot stuff. But the part that, you know, I think might be interesting, just so that we can think a little critically about this. One of the things that surprises me about that is, I mean, you talk about Jeffrey Epstein, you mentioned him earlier, totally makes sense. You know, there are people out there who do harm to children, and some of them are really wealthy, and some of them are whatever. There there, there are many things, many reasons. But in this case specifically, what really I, I haven't been able to wrap my head around is the fact that there are just as many photos of Donald Trump with Jeffrey Epstein as there are with Bill Clinton or any of the others, you know, that are somehow implicated. Mm -hmm. And there have been a lot of accusations, dozens of people have come forward saying that Trump has either harassed them or raped them or something. Now, why would people believe only half of that and not the other half? Like, why would they think that this person who's already has this history and this connection to Epstein and all these nefarious people is somehow trying to save the universe, right? You know, it's trying to save, well, the opposite is true for the, for the same people who are at the exact same dinner parties and banquets and fundraisers. <laughs> what? I can't make sense of that. Can you help? Oh, gosh. Do, do you remember when Trump said um, he, uh, you know, could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and no one would care? How can we forget? Absolutely. How can we forget? Yeah. I think part of this, it, it kind of connects with what you were just talking about with the with Elon Musk and Tesla and the Washington Post is that trust has shifted. But has and, it shifted to millionaires? I mean, I don't, where's the shift, where's the trust shifted yeah. to? Yeah. It's, well, one is I think the thing to remember about Trump is that he's not just a millionaire. He's a reality television star. He's a, he's a wrestling star. He is a tabloid star, and uh, and he's a he's a kind of mega brand that uh, you know that sells books and sells T-shirts and hats, and so um, in so many ways, like I think you know, and I was writing about this a little while ago, and it, it's been it's been fascinating to, to watch this. Is is that you know more than memes, more than decentralization of media, is but what we're seeing is reality television hitting politics at scale. It's just as true with AOC, by the way, where these reality television techniques, which is to have your brand be, you know, like, and do your selfies and and be trusted by your fans and have all your super fans and uh, do your events and appearances, have your books, uh, your TV shows, right? That trust, trust Trump is no normal millionaire. He he has built trust over decades through his his television and radio appearances and everything. And so and so we're seeing that technique also with AOC where only now she's beginning to build that trust like with the with the Twitch and and Instagram stories. But it seems like that's where trust is going is the way from kind of like the the kind of mainstream kind of mechanism of trust but more towards individuals and which is you know, both helpful sometimes, but also, yeah, as we're saying, like you can shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and maybe no one would care. 
Yeah, I think that's such a, a good point too, because I think this, I think people have discounted how much reality TV had played a role. And I, yeah. and I mean, people sort of slurred it, you know, would try to like use it as a slur, you know, yep. reality TV star, which I think was really a big mistake, frankly. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think, you know, anybody who's been on reality TV for 15 years, you're, yep. you're not going to be able to change someone's opinion of them for in a year. You're just That's not. exactly right. Yeah. And then the other yeah. thing is, um, I do think people also underestimate how much this sort of sitcom model has entered politics, by which I mean, and, you know, this is something that I remember reading about The Simpsons, believe it or not, you know, where Homer Simpson, every episode is a new person because shows are no longer shown chronologically, right? Most of the right, time, right. so it's like every episode, Homer Simpson wakes up and he's a new person, by which I mean, we all know who he is. He's kind of dumb. He's sort of like the dopey American dad. And that episode, though, he's going to do something ridiculous that hurts someone. He's going to be forgiven. You know, they're like the tropes that like, you know, that continue again and again. But the next episode, he's not going to learn anything. Right. He hasn't learned a single thing. He hasn't learned how to not blow up the nuclear station. He hasn't learned how to not run over Bart with a car. Right. He has not learned (laughs) not to, you know, but it's like he hasn't learned that drinking too much beer is bad. You know, it's like, and I feel like part of it is Trump has become Homer, right? He's Mm, become this every episode. He wakes up and people are like, what's he going to do today? You know, here's this like ridiculous person. And I don't think that people are giving enough credit to that. You know, this kind of like this idea of like the television trope has been reproduced in our, in our political media, I should say. Absolutely. I don't know. Politics, I mean, yeah. So what are we going to do on like, this is, you know, cause yeah. part of it also for, I mean, I also think this is an opportunity yeah. to kind of, you know, I hate to be so advicey, but I feel like in, it's required particularly of artists and art people because yeah. we are, you know, dealing with these images. We are giving platforms yeah. to things, yeah. you know, some of which are pretty dangerous, frankly, you know, yeah. I mean, yeah. we just have to remember a few years ago, the artist in the Northwest in the Seattle area who was called out, who was actually incorporating neo-Nazi imagery into his work and was part of some major exhibitions, including, you know, at the Whitney Museum, mm-hmm. like, that he's a neo-Nazi, like, you know, a total believer in neo-Nazis. Right. Mm-hmm. And it makes me think about the politics of other people in the room sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. what are the politics? So, how do we do that? How do we become ethical cultural creators and generators and producers and critics engaging with this material and not like, you know, I, I hate, I hate, I'd hate to think that people are going to go, oh, you know, it's all trash. I mean, this is, you know, people always said that about the internet for ages, right? It's all trash. Let's not worry about it. Let's sit here with our, you know, high literature and like auteur cinema and like talk about as if like culture was still in the 60s and 70s. Right, right. So what do you think? What do we do? Yeah, well, it reminds me of that, remember that moment, and this this of course famous in debate history, right? Uh, Where uh, Nixon refused to wear makeup um, for for the television debate with JFK, right? And, and, you know, the, the kind of, results of that was that people who were listening on radio felt that Nixon had won and people watching on TV felt that JFK had won. And, and kind of that, again, that, that kind of makeup idea, right? It's this idea that, oh, this is, this is silly. This is not, this is not important, um, but actually super important. And, uh, and, and it was often missed from that story is that Nixon learned from that moment. Um, and he was the first one to set up the White House communications office, right? And it developed an incredible TV campaigns and uh, developed the kind of television innovations that uh, um, that shaped the modern presidency to this day. Um, 
So none of this is silly. None of this is uh, is inconsequential. And uh, to, for us to be dismissive of reality television, I love the Homer point. Homer is one of the most influential uh, people, you know, characters in in decades, right? How long has he been on, on television now, right? Probably a few um, years. So, I mean, if not more. Yeah, yeah. I, I think mean, you're totally people, right. Their whole lives, their whole lives, they've known Homer. Have known Homer, yeah. I think you're totally right. Trump is like a modern day. It's like a kind of real life Homer in terms of all those dynamics around sitcoms, right? Nothing's new. It's a permanent Groundhog Day, and so yeah, I think as cultural critics, we got to tease that out, take it seriously, which we already do, um, but help other people understand that that uh, these things are not, uh, yeah, these things are not inconsequential. Um, they they truly matter, and I think if we don't learn that lesson. We're going to get another. We're going to get a Nixon moment. I think Trump is the one showing the proof of concept for all of these strategies. But uh, you know, it was Nixon who showed the real power of television and and disinformation uh, in the service of, of power. And so, you know, regardless of the outcome of the election, we're go- we're just going to see these techniques continue. And so, we need to bring forth that critical discourse in ways that are appealing to people, that are interesting, and that that challenge people to to think about what's going on. I mean, I hope people teach media literacy yeah, um, I hope so. yeah. I, more and more, and particularly in our programs. You know, I just want to kind of give you an example uh, that I think is pretty funny, but also kind of scary. I just sure. did a Google image search for the word Homer. Mm, and of course, yeah, the top images that show only one of them is the ancient Greek. Um, all mm. the others are Homer Simpson. Mm. They kind of also just like even like something like Homer has penetrated yeah. even something yeah. as epic as this, one of the great, you know, historians of civilization has now sort of like taken a back seat to this cartoon character, even on our right. screen. Right. So right. I think that's yeah. really telling. Anything you want to add on? Um, I always like love to talk to you about these things. Yeah, but likewise. I just yeah. wanted to see if there's anything, you know, you've been observing that you think people should have on their radar. I feel like we have, feel like we've talked through so much, uh, Rog. like uh, it's always, yeah, it's always great to talk to you. And I think, um, I don't know. I have too much to add. I, I just, uh, you know, I, I'm excited about this special edition that you're putting together, and I hope we're all thinking, you know, thinking about like what what is this new thing? Like, uh, you know, like the what is the role of video games in all of this? What is the role of TikTok? Um, and that's part of why I enjoy talking to you because you, we're taking taking seriously these, these fun things. And so, I just hope everyone is taking care of themselves during these difficult times and uh, remembering also that. Uh, diving into this stuff can also be, you know, psychologically very, very difficult. And so um, let's also make sure we're taking care of each other and uh, just being kind. Absolutely. And I just want people to remember uh, about your book, Memes to Movements, how the world's most viral media is changing social protest and power. And they should definitely check that out if they want to sort of understand how these things link together. Because I think this is also one of the trouble we're having is so many of us have little pieces of knowledge but to actually see how they connect yeah. is really difficult because sometimes they don't connect so cleanly and we can't always get the evidence of like interconnections between things so clearly. So thank you on for continuing to help guide us and yeah, thanks, uh, look forward to our next conversation. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having me. The music this episode is a brand new track by Command Doss called Proof. Check them out. And make sure to check out the rest of the propaganda issue, which includes an article about the origin of the propaganda office at the Vatican. Many people may not be aware, but that's where the word comes from. Visit hyperallergic.com for more. I'm Hrag Bartanyan, the editor in chief and co founder of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening. 
and stay safe.